We're looking at a series right now dealing with faith. Today we're going to talk about faith and works. Next week we're going to talk probably about faith and hope. So when we talk about this today, faith and works, I would like to read uh, from Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through verse 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So that we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I have died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ would have died for no purpose. We're talking about the nature of merit and saving faith. Faith in a true relationship with God, and then what comes after a person has saving faith in Christ and that's to live and do endeavor to live as becometh the followers of Christ. Now, October 31st, All Saints Day, 1517, Martin Luther took a number of protests that he had written out, and he nailed them to the community bulletin board. It was the chapel uh, door of the, the church in Wittenberg in Germany. And what he was doing, in summary, is that he was protesting the abuses in the doctrine of salvation that had crept into the Roman Catholic Church of his time. So that was the beginning of uh, the Protestant Reformation. It's a great deal of the issues that we deal with. Uh, today are still continuing over from that time. This passage reflects Martin Luther's thinking that man is not justified by works, but he went on to say by faith, and then he added a word, alone, that we're saved by faith alone. And really that's the sense of what Paul is saying in these verses uh, in Galatians chapter 2. Now, anybody know it? Excuse me, anybody know what tomorrow is? Tomorrow's Billy Graham's 95th birthday. So tomorrow, Billy Graham will turn 95. Now, Billy Graham, tomorrow night, if you want to turn into whatever the Fox channel is, and at 10 o'clock tomorrow night, there will be broadcasts all across the United States at the same time, 
in a sense, Billy Graham's final message to America. Now, I can remember as a child hearing about Billy Graham. In, in West Palm Beach, Florida, we had a crusade when I was still in grammar school. And I can remember sitting on the bleachers there at the Palm Beach High School football field. And I can remember the, this is the first time that I had any sense that I needed to, quote, go forward. But I did. I went forward at a Billy Graham crusade back when I was in grammar school, um, having listened to him preach. Now, Billy Graham's message was just over and over again pointing to the Bible. You remember how he did it? He'd hold the Bible, and his finger would come down on the Bible like this. He'd point to the Word of God. And he would tell us that we needed to be saved by placing our faith in Christ Jesus alone. That's been his message. Now, just again, reflect on those things. Just reflect that if, what if three years from now, all of us are here? The same group, none of us have passed on. We're here, and let's just say we decide to come on Wednesday. Well, it will be 500 years ago that Martin Luther began that Protestant Reformation. That's just anniversaries, just three years from now. So we look at this. This is the article by which the church either stands or falls, that we're justified by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, what was the error that was being spoken to, and what was the correction and then what is the outcome? The error was merit. The goal was that we would be consumed with understanding the grace of God in Christ Jesus and embrace that grace through faith. And then that we would live, that we would live as becometh the followers of Jesus Christ. Just very simply, that was, that's the goal of the scriptures. Now, what about this error? Well, you and I, we're, you know, I kind of take it, we're just kind of normal folk. And as normal folk, we're kind of suspicious of somebody offering us something of value for nothing. Now, if you're listening and watching any of these uh, ads on wealth management, you've got some group that is offering to give you $600 worth of silver polar bear coins if you'll just roll over your annuity into their uh, scheme. Now, I'm not going to ask how many of you have gotten the 600 polar bear coins. I've kind of got a feeling that I, I know the answer to that. I doubt if there's anybody in this room that's done that. Why? Well, I think you think you're pretty savvy. I, don't, I haven't given them my money. Getting something like that for nothing, that just doesn't ring. Now, on the other hand, being kind of normal folks, we, we really have come to understand that you only get out of something what you want. Put into it. So we've kind of got this suspicion on the one hand, and then we've got this kind of mentality on the other hand that says we need to earn what we got if it's going to be of any value. But in the area, in the arena of Christian salvation, this perspective 
becomes to us a great obstacle in understanding the salvation that's in Christ Jesus. This idea that we can earn it, this idea that we can merit it, becomes for us an obstacle in coming to faith in Christ. I know that it was an obstacle to me. Why is it an obstacle? And the obstacle is this. Mankind is spiritually dead. That's a reality. When we're born, as David says in Psalm 51, we're born in our transgression and in our sin. We're born in a manner of moral and spiritual uh, inadequacy. We're without strength. They're without hope. Man's spiritually dead. Now, what do we know about being a Christian? What is the nature of a person being a Christian, being a believer? The very essence of it is that the person is spiritually alive. What is a Christian? A Christian is a person who is spiritually alive to God. Well, how does a person who is dead going to become spiritually alive? And we say that the dead person has no moral ability to do that. Now, from time to time, we get into discussions with people. I think if you listen to Chip preach for any length of time, you hear him talking about numbers of dialogues that he has regularly with people that are unbelievers. Right now, he is dealing with about 10 Chinese and one um, Vietnamese student, and right now he's conducting a, a series of lectures twice a week with them, and every one of them would tell you that they're atheists. In ships meeting with them twice a week for an hour in explaining the, uh, what the Bible teaches. They're spiritually dead. What would our goal be? That they would come to faith. But how can that happen? They have no ability. So when we deal with people that are not Christians, they want us to see them as being very much alive. They'll do all manner of things to convince you. Uh, they'll talk to you and uh, uh, tell you all the good things that they do for other people, and they see that they're doing these things to do them for God, and that God should be happy and pleased and accepting of them, because, after all, I do these good things for God. Now, I started that church at Lake Oconee, and we were meeting on Sunday evenings initially at a gazebo uh, that was a part of one of those golf communities up there. And right next to it was a nice pool and a, a nice area there to uh, uh, relax. And so on a particular Sunday evening, we decided not to have services. We were going to have a potluck dinner for everybody that was attending. So we got there earlier, and we set up, and we're just about finishing eating, and this couple showed up in just, I mean, they were retired, but I'm telling you, they were dressed to the tens. And Stephen walked up and introduced himself to me, and he said, I've just retired this last year, and... Uh, I've had a very active career with Sears and Roebuck, and during that career, it took me away from the church. And now that I'm retired, 
I am endeavoring to work my way back into favor with God. Now, that's exactly what he said to me. (laughs) Now, I know Steve, and Steve was saying it in order to impress. He wanted me to know how sincere he was about coming and looking at our church. That's the way people think. Now, here's the problem. Let's just say you could do that. If we just decided today, from this point in time on, I want to be honest. I am going to be absolutely honest. Can that being honest from this day forward make up for the dishonesty of the past? And just ask yourself this question, because most of us, you know, I basically think you all are pretty honest people. But just how honest is our Christian honesty anyway? When you get right down to it, is it all that perfectly honest? I think we all know the answer to that. Well, what about being truthful? Is truthfulness, if we just decide we're going to never tell a lie, do you think it's going to correct us being deceptive? I am very deceptive. You probably know that. You know, my neighbor abandoned his house about I don't know, a year ago. You know what it's like to live in a neighborhood with an abandoned house? So you know what I do every week when I mow the front yard strip in front of my house? What do you think I do? I mow his. You know his driveway? If I didn't pick up those papers like the ad paper that was thrown this morning, what would be there after a couple of weeks? Uh Uh-uh, that paper's gone this morning. You know all the pine straw that's on that man's driveway? It's in my flower area. If you just drive by that house and take a look at it, it looks pretty neat. What am I being? Deceptive. Aren't we all? We look and we say we're going to be outwardly pure before God. I mean, I think all of us are outwardly pure before God. But is it a covering for what goes on in our hearts and our minds? I mean, what does the children's catechism say? Can I see God? No. But God sees me. What does the Psalms tell us? Even a child is known by his doings. We're known before God. So our trying to make up and be different is one thing, but we can't, we won't, and it doesn't make up for what's in the past. Martin Luther worked at this more than any human being that I've ever read about. Now, if you would like a wonderful read, a very straightforward read on Martin Luther's life, there's a wonderful book that you can get, and it's just simply called Here I Stand written by a man by the name of Roland Baton. We have it in our church library, but it's just readily available. But you will read a chapter after chapter of this man's early life of the agonies that he went through trying to work himself in a way that he felt that God would accept him. 
And he would work and he would fail. And when he would fail, he would confess his sins. And he was driving the other priests and the other monks in the monastery absolutely nuts with his confessing of his sin. Well, instead of loving God, his failures in his moral inability led him to say the damnable, I hate God. That's where Martin Luther come, came to. If we, if we try to do what we can't do. Now, this is the, the goal of the law of God. One of the principal goals of the law of God is try it. Just try to do it in a manner in which you're going to gain merit from it. And what you're going to find is that you're going to fall and fall and fall, and you're going to see the standard of perfection held before you, and you keep seeing you're falling. And, you know, there's an old adage from the skiing slopes, if you're not falling, you're not learning. And if we fall and we learn, then we learn that we can't do this And that's one of the primary goals of the law, to teach us we cannot keep the law. So now this law tells us and teaches us to look somewhere else. And that's the goal that God has for us. You know, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, Jesus said to him, you know the law. Don't commit adultery. Don't commit murder. Don't lie. Don't covet, don't steal. What did the rich young ruler say? All these things I've done. Well, then Jesus says, well, then go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. In moral inability, he went away. We learn from God's law, we can't fulfill it. Now, what does God the Father say from the cloud about his son Jesus at his baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember? This is my beloved son. Hear him. Listen to him. That's the answer. So if there's the error of merit, there is then the answer of the grace of God. Now, Again, if we take a look at Romans now, just for a minute, chapter 8, the first few verses, and then verse 11, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4, so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And then in verse 11, but if the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your moral bodies through his spirit who dwells within you. What is Paul saying in these verses? The intent and the clarity of thought in Paul's language here is just simply this. We, as human beings, cannot 
merit God's salvation through the law. The law is seen here in Romans chapter 8 as something divinely given. Now, whenever something's divinely given, we call whatever that is a gift. God has given us the gift of the law. But the gift to us is also a divinely given code of conduct. It is external. That's the problem. The law of God is given to us when we're unconverted is external. We look at it, we read it, we study it, we seek to follow it, and we fall flat on our face in sin over and over again. Why? Because man is still spiritually dead in his transgressions and sin. So Paul is saying what the law could not do, what man could not do by the law. Paul concludes then that the law is weak. Paul concludes, therefore, that man is weak because he is in the flesh in his sin. And then Paul says very clearly here, what man cannot do, God does. What is the answer? And in these verses, we're given over and over again clarity that the answer is what was done by Jesus Christ in his earthly life. Now, we pick up this New Testament and we start reading it. It doesn't matter which one of the books we read over and over again. It's all about who? Jesus, God's son. You pick up the book of Jude, it's about God's son. You pick up the book of Revelation, it's about why are all these books about God's son? You would think somebody would come and say, it must be the answer. What is the children's answer to the question? What was the sermon about? It's got, this child's going to give you one of two answers. First answer is what? God. The other answer is Jesus. (laughs) Well, you've got the whole New Testament. In each one of these books is about Jesus. In, in the shorthand, it's saying God's grace is God sends the Son. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. What do we know? This Son lived this sinless, perfect life. Thought, word, deed, he kept the law. He said it's written in the book that I love to do your, your will. And he did. Then we see that it comes to the end and the grace of God is realized in Jesus's atoning death. Uh, that he would die on the cross in the full sense of paying for every aspect of our sin. Again, I think that we, we've taken a number of times in here to talk about all the dimensions of this. But it deals with God's anger towards our sin. It deals with the broken estrangement of our relationship called alienation. It deals with the bondage that a person is in to sin. We call that the dealing of that redemption. It deals with the mind and the the internal uh, functions of of our, our, our human nature where it says, The blood of Christ cleanses our conscience from dead sin. 
everything about what Christ is doing is to meet every dimension of our moral, spiritual need to take away all of that infirmity. And then what we're told is that he rises victoriously and he reigns eternally as God's perfect son, the God-man, at God's right hand. Now what does he do from that position? One of the first things that is done from his position of being ascended and seated at God's right hand is that he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes upon each and every one of us. Now, if you look at Romans and you look at chapter 7 and you go down and read through the chapter, I don't think you're going to find the word Holy Spirit mentioned even one time. And you see the frustrating things that can happen to a Christian person when they're just still trying to function in a way that they think they're going to please God by keeping the law of God in their own strength. And then over that agony, you see in chapter 8, Paul bursting forth with the truth of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And now in chapter 8, you see like 20 plus times as you start counting them down the page here, the recollection of the work of the Holy Spirit. What has happened to us here? God's Son is the answer, but in coming to believe in God's Son, what we find is we are able to believe because God has given us spiritual life by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come into our lives, and the Holy Spirit has made us alive in Christ Jesus. This same guy, Steve, continued to come to our church. Well, we moved after a number of months. We outgrew the gazebo, and there was a community center there at Lake Oconee at a place called Sebastian Cove. So we moved to Sebastian Cove. We had a little larger place to meet. Steve and his wife are coming every week. Dick, one of the men in the church, has started a small group in his home. In that small group, he's going through the basics of the gospel. Steve and his wife are there. Then we moved to a third location, and we started actually paying rent. And Steve and Janice are just totally involved. And then one night, Dick's having his small group, and either I wasn't feeling well or one of our three children at the home at that time wasn't feeling well. So I stayed home, and Pat went to small group. Well, she came home from that small group that night, and she says, you are not going to believe what happened tonight. I says, well, what's that? She says, well, right in the middle of the small group, Steve said, when I came to this church, I believed that I could honestly work my way back into favor with God. Listening to John and then being in this Bible study, I've come to know you cannot work your way back into favor with God. There is no merit from that. And I says, well, what else? She says, that's it. <laughs> he got that much, but he had that much clear 
Well, there you go. God's Son is the answer to our spiritual need. God calls on us to what in his grace? What are we to do with God's grace? We're to believe. We're to believe that God is gracious. Now, what are we told that we're to do with God's Son? What are we to do with his name? We're to what? Believe on his name. What are we told we're to do about Jesus as a person? Well, we're to receive him as a gift. Now, when we receive him, he comes into us. When we receive the gift of the law, the law is still external. But when we receive Jesus, Jesus is coming into us by his Holy Spirit. And what is the language from John? What does John call this? We're what? Born again. And now we have life, spiritual life, within us. We once were dead, but now we're alive spiritually. And we're told that even that in Ephesians 2 is the gift of God. Now, when we see it this way, as the scriptures are talking about it, we come to understand what the scriptures are saying and the theologians are saying when we're saying that salvation is a gift of God's grace from first to last. Salvation is entirely the gift of God that we're to receive. Uh, I would just say to you, God offers the gift and offers the gift. Now, Billy Graham's going to get on the television tomorrow night, and what is he going to do? He is going to principally offer the gift of Jesus Christ to all those who hear him and say that this is our great national need. This is our great personal need. And I just encourage you, you may never have received the gift. You just merely have to say, Lord Jesus, come in to my life. Be my savior. Take away my sin, my guilt, and give me spiritual life. And he promises that he'll do that. Well, Steve's gotten a long way down the road. And then, got to watch the time here. It was the weekend of Tiger Woods' great triumph at the Masters Golf Tournament. On Wednesday... Before that week, Steve went to the doctor, and he had an abdominal x-ray, and the doctor said, do you mind, I'd like to take a chest x-ray, there's something I don't like. So he says, well, sure, that's what I'm here for. Well, he came in, and he says, Steve, you've got a aneurysm on your descending aorta that's the size of a baby's head. And you are a time bomb. When you leave here, you need to go to a hospital. And he made some recommendations, so we went to Augusta. Well, you know, you show up in Augusta on a Wednesday, 
and in walks this guy on Thursday morning to look at you, and he is one of these natty dressed to the ten doctors that's just cooler than cool, and he's just sauntering in there, and he says, well, yeah, you got this problem. He says, but you got a bigger problem than that. And he says, well, what's that? He says, well, Saturday they start here at the Augusta National, and all of our doctors will be out of town. We don't like to do a surgery like this on a, on a weekend. All the doctors will be gone. And next week, they'll be gone the whole week because they'll be at the golf course. And they can't take any pagers. So we don't want to do the surgery next week. So you're going to have to wait until after the Masters golf tournament to have surgery. And I suggest you just stay right there in that bed. You know, we had him right where we wanted him. And we went over and talked to him, and I just said to him, just as clear as a bell, Dick and I sitting in the room, I says, Steve, have you ever asked Jesus to come into your life and to forgive you your sins? Now, the nice thing about Steve was he was a full-blown Yankee, and he'd tell you just exactly the way it was. He says, no, I have never done that. I says, I think you know what you need to do. Well, there it was. Well, we came back the day before the surgery, and he said, I says, what's that mean? He says, I did it. <laughs> that was the only way that he could express it. I did it. I want to tell you about a life that was changed. Now, what ended up happening? Well, it says here, the righteous requirements of the law are then fulfilled, and thus who walk according to the Spirit. Steve's life was turned upside down. You know, he had grown children, and the youngest was in their 30s. They no more understood their daddy at that point in time than if he'd been somebody totally new to him. Steve's affections in life were completely transformed. It was all about knowing more about Jesus and knowing, how can I serve this Jesus? What can I do for this Jesus because of what he's done for me? Now, that's not works, but that's Christian service. And here we are, 12 years down the road, and this man has been an officer in that church, and he's led one thing after another in that church during these 12 years. His wife was buried about a month ago. But you see, this is the nature of it. We can't merit salvation through works. Works lead us to through failure to know that we have to look to God and to Christ. But as soon as we receive God's Son, we receive the Holy Spirit, and we don't worry about what merit is. We just want to serve him. We want to do what he wants to do. And that's called the Christian life. That's what Paul's talking about here. That's what Billy Graham's going to be talking about. This is what our message is over and over again, just as clear as we can make it, that people will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do pray that if there are any here that do not believe, that they will. We know all of us have friends that don't believe, but they could hear this tomorrow night, or they can hear our witness. We can bring them with us to church they'll hear the gospel message. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit in a manner that would convert many, many people
not only in our nation, but around the world, to a saving faith in your son Jesus, the greatest gift the world has ever received. Now help us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen.